where are the lines going to be drawn in the future? It's really been about the public. It's been giving rights to individuals, but ultimately it's a giving of those rights for the main purpose of allowing people to be encouraged to create, to share, so that the public can benefit from it. Authors, however, deserve a right to be at the table when their works are going to be mass digitized and commercialized by a company like Google. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and I also practice law. My co-host Jay Craig Williams is away on business today and not able to be with us. Before we get started introducing today's topic, I'd like to just take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management platform for lawyers. It's available at www.goclio.com. Thanks to uh, Clio for sponsoring the show. Ten years ago, the Authors Guild and other plaintiffs filed a lawsuit against Google in a copy, alleging copyright infringement uh, in a case involving Google's book scanning project, a searchable database that allows a user to search the content of all books that have been scanned into the database. Ten years later, a federal appeals court uh, just recently ruled, the, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals just recently ruled that the project does not violate copyright laws, f- considered, considered fair use under copyright law, and does not uh, infringe on the copyrights of its authors. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this uh, recent ruling in the Authors Guild versus Google case, talk about uh, its implications for copyright law and uh, and for authors and publishers and the general public of uh, readers as well. To help us explore this issue today, we have three guests uh, who uh, know this topic well. Let me introduce each of them. Uh, beginning with our first guest today is attorney William H. Frankel. Bill is a shareholder with the law firm Brinks, Gilson, and Leone out of Chicago. Bill serves as chair of the firm's copyright group. His practice includes patent, trademark, copyright, trade secrets, and unfair competition litigation and jury and non-jury cases, intellectual property litigation and counseling and licensing. He's counseled clients in the evaluation, protection, procurement, and transfer of IP rights, including providing legal expertise in worldwide patent protection and the coordination of legal strategies in global IP disputes. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Our next guest today is attorney Kenneth D. Cruz from the firm Gibson, Hoffman, and Pantheon out of Los Angeles, California, where he specializes in copyright law serving the commercial and entertainment sectors as well as nonprofit entities, individual authors, and other creative talent. For more than 25 years, his research, policymaking, and teaching have centered on copyright issues of importance to education and research. Kenneth Cruz established and directed the nation's first university-based copyright office at University at Indiana University, where he also had a tenured law professorship. He was later recruited to establish a similar office at Columbia University in New York, and he currently serves on the faculty of Columbia Law School. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Kenneth Cruz. Pleasure to be here. 
And last but not least, joining us today is attorney Jeremy S. Goldman from the firm Frankfurt, Kernet, Klein, and Seltz in Los Angeles, in New York, rather. Jeremy represents a number of companies and individuals in the media, entertainment, advertising, and technology spaces in complex litigations involving copyright in the digital age, film and television contracts, trademarks, and rights of publicity. He's litigated some of the most closely watched copyright and entertainment cases including having represented the Authors Guild in uh, the case that we're talking about today, the Google Books case, and also in a related case, the Hathi Trust cases, and uh, representing Hasbro in a 2014 trial in Los Angeles over the motion picture rights to Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jeremy Goldman. Thanks, Bob. Uh, happy to be here. Very happy to have all of you today. This case started back and actually let me just ask a preliminary question Jeremy I, I know that you were involved in this case uh, as a lawyer on behalf of uh, the plaintiffs Bill and Kenneth I, I just wanted to confirm neither of you were directly involved in this case is that correct that's correct yeah that's correct and and it might look to some as if I were because Columbia and Indiana uh, had some involvement in this case but as luck would have it the uh, Timing was such that I didn't have any decision-making activity in in this matter from the university perspective. So, Jeremy, then let me. I, I want to start with you going back to to 2005. What was it that Google was doing that that the Authors Guild and the other plaintiffs in this case objected to? Well, let me just start off by saying my involvement in the case, of course, is only that of being the attorney for the Authors Guild, and I, of course, will uh, try to represent the Authors Guild's position here, but I'm not, I'm not here as an attorney for the Authors Guild. I'm here on my own behalf. My involvement with the case began uh, later in time, after 2005, when the Authors Guild brought of the hockey trust lawsuit against uh, the universities that had provided the books to Google and that was in, I believe, in 2013 when that lawsuit was filed. Uh, but, but to your question, uh, you know, I think it is good to start there in 2005. Uh, if you go in the time machine back to 2005, I think the, uh, there was a lot of shock uh, around the authorship community, the rights holder community, the, the publishing community at what Google was undertaking with uh, some of the largest university libraries in, in the country and, and ultimately the world. And what that involved, and people, uh, I think, lose, may lose sight of this, it involved you know, Google having uh, trucks back up onto the lots of libraries and having bookshelves emptied and put onto carts and put into trucks and then brought to facilities where books, millions of them, were scanned end-to-end uh, and digitized uh, for, for Google to use and then for the libraries to use. Um, back then, and uh, still today to certainly the Authors Guild and many authors that support uh, the Authors Guild, this is a violation of the most basic fundamental uh, aspect of copyright, which is the author's exclusive right to control the reproduction of a copyrighted work. Um, so it was the millions of copies of books on scanning machines that made, uh, made the, uh, the Authors Guild uh, concerned back then. Um, and then furthermore, it was also the fact that Google was not just engaging in those copies and saving their own copies and providing copies to libraries, but they also were 
displaying uh, verbatim text from those books uh, to the public, which uh, the Authors Guild considered to be a separate violation of, of copyright. And the concern was always that the authors were losing their, their right to control the dissemination of their works and that the uh, that Google, this uh, for-profit corporation, was going to uh, profit and be able to build out their search engine and to be in a huge competitive advantage over other over other businesses using the uh, the works of authors. Uh, so that I think, at least in a nutshell, is what motivated the Authors Guild to bring that lawsuit and has motivated the Authors Guild to continue uh, litigating that issue. I wonder uh, if I could just turn to our, our other guests. Again, I understand neither of you were involved in this case, but you know, in the dog years of the internet, uh, 10 years ago was a long time ago, and, and Google was nowhere near as, as prominent of a company as it is now. This was all kind of a new terrain, I, I think, probably for uh, for a lot of people. Kenneth Cruz, I mean, with the benefit, uh, perhaps foregoing hindsight to some extent, knowing what's happened with this case, but I mean, when you first became aware of this case, uh, whenever it was, if when you first learned of it a decade or so ago, what were your thoughts on the issues in this case? Yeah, thank you very much. My thoughts really played into the way copyright works overall. Uh, copyright does grant rights to initially authors, and then those rights are often transferred to other parties. So, so very often the parties who are the holders of the legal rights are, are not the authors. They're often the publishers or heirs or they're somebody else. But somebody holds the copyright and has rights to, to take legal action with respect to, as we just heard, as Jeremy just laid out, uh, address issues of, of reproduction, distribution, public display, etc. But copyright also includes exceptions and limitations. And the, the key point that was critical in this case was whether this activity by Google fit within the parameters of fair use. Fair use being one of the, the many statutory exceptions to the rights of copyright owners. Uh, there are copyright exceptions for the benefit of the music industry and benefit of, of horticultural fairs and education. And then there's also this very general concept of fair use. This was breaking new ground, so there was uh, plenty of room to debate when we first heard about this case, when anybody first heard about it, to debate whether or not this activity with all of its specifics was in fact within fair use. What we also had to think about was just the logistics of making a business decision. There are two gigantic business decisions here. One is the decision of Google to decide, as I assume in private meetings with the lawyers, with key officials, is this fair use to our satisfaction such that we can move forward with this project? Because we, it took 10 years to get a court ruling on that question. And then there's the question by the plaintiffs about uh, expenditures and strategy. Do we bring this litigation knowing that we're litigating against a, a major party uh, that has deep pockets and litigation that, that, well, once you start litigation, you don't know where it's going to take you. So when we first heard about this case, it was a big open debate about fair use, and it was a, a big open debate about the business decisions on both parts about how to proceed. Thanks. And Bill Frankel, how about you? What were your thoughts when you first heard about this case? Did it strike you as a, as a slam dunk for one side or the other, or uh, how did you see it playing out? Did you think it would take 10 years? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, like, uh, like Jeremy said, it was a pretty significant event in copyright law to see, as he described, the trucks pulling up to the library and physically copying such a large number of works in their entirety. But this precedent of fair use uh, was well known. The Supreme Court had spoken to the issue 10 years prior in the Campbell versus Acafrose music case, where this whole transformative uh, notion was, was evolving that we see played out in the, in the current decision. And so we had an inkling of where the, uh, the battle lines are going to be drawn, but it was very unclear at that time to me which, which way this would go, uh, because there, was, there were different kinds of copying. There, were, there was the digitization of the books at the outset, just a, a blatant copying, uh, and then subsequently Google processed that information, offered different viewing options depending on the copyright status of the work and, and other factors. And so there were many pieces of the puzzle that we were looking at and wondering where this would all go. Now we have the benefit of considerable evolution, for better or for worse, uh, of the fair use analysis. We've seen it play out in the art world with appropriation art cases. We've seen it elsewhere. And I think the law has been evolving and, you know, we can get into those details, but I don't think the case, the decision is as much of a surprise and a shock uh, as, as it might've been if it had come down 10 years ago. Um, so that's kind of how I view the the evolution of the case. I, I think it was a bit of a coin toss to me at, at the outset, but I think uh, by now we pretty much saw this coming. And I guess uh, over the course of that 10 years, a lot happened, uh, obviously, uh, in this case, as well as uh, with regard to Google and the internet and, and, and other issues. There, there had been, uh, I think, in uh, around 2000 and Eight, if I'm correct, uh, the parties had negotiated a settlement agreement um, that would have paid some money, that would have had Google paying some money to uh, authors. Uh, but uh, the judge, uh, Denny Chin, who was the trial judge in this case, uh, now a Second Circuit judge, uh, rejected that settlement, as I understand it. And, and the case then went forward, and, and uh, Judge Chin ultimately issued his decision uh, finding uh, – that there were no copyright violations, and uh, that brought the case to the Second Circuit. Jeremy, do I have that history uh, pretty much right up to that point? You do have the history right, and the, the history of this is fascinating for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, the Authors Guild subsequently brought a case against against Hathi Trust, which was the name of the collaboration between university libraries that had uh, digitized their books in conjunction with Google and with other entities. We brought that case, as I mentioned, in 2013 or, or 2012. I'm sorry if I forget the, the year. But that case was decided in the Second Circuit uh, before the Google Books case was decided, the case against Google was decided by the Second Circuit. And so when the Authors Guild went before the Second Circuit, there had already been a decision by the same court holding that the Hathi Trust program was fair use. And you know, in terms of the timing of it, and I think going to what your first question was, you know, it wasn't just that technology had changed and just that the fair use had, had evolved in, in really significant ways with some, some interim decisions by courts of appeals between 2005 and when this decision came out. 
It was also the judges themselves and the clerks of the judges had gotten used to Google Books and, and they liked it. Um, it was really neat. Um, in, in fact, I remember during oral argument on the Hathi Trust case in the Second Circuit, I think it was Judge Parker, though I'm not exact, I can't remember for sure. He said, well, you know, my clerks really use Google Books for site checking. You know, it's really, isn't it really a helpful tool counsel? And, you know, that really struck me because that's, you know, maybe that's a relevant question, maybe not, but it certainly speaks to the fact that over the course of these 10 years from when the Authors Guild first filed this case, people, including the judges themselves, had gotten used to having all the books in the world, the content of all the books in the world available at their fingertips. And I'm not suggesting that the display of all the books was available, but certainly the tool itself, being able to find what you want and be able to cite to it was really interesting to judges. By that point in time, everyone had gotten used to it. We need to take a short break. Uh, A lot more to talk about here, but so stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments after a word from our commercial sponsor. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and with me today is uh, Bill Frankel, an attorney with the law firm Brinks, Gilson, and Leone in Chicago, Attorney Kenneth Cruz with the firm Gibson, Hoffman, and Pantheon in Los Angeles, and Attorney Jeremy S. Goldman from the firm Frankfurt, Kern, and Klein, and Seltz in New York City, and uh, one of the attorneys involved in the uh, Google Books case. And uh, in October, uh, just a few weeks ago, the Second Circuit came down with its decision in this case. Uh, and, and Jeremy, you were, you were just commenting on uh, the fact that uh, it, it appeared that uh, one thing that's happened is that people and, uh, and, and judges in particular maybe came to like Google Books. Uh, one of the points that the Second Circuit judge who wrote the opinion, Judge Pierre Laval, made uh, something he said in the opinion is he said that thus, while, while authors are undoubtedly important intended beneficiaries of copyright, the ultimate primary intended beneficiary is the public whose access to knowledge copyright seeks to advance by providing rewards for authorship. Kenneth Cruz, I have to wonder, is, is that sort of a, a big part of the decision here that the, the judges or the Second Circuit is seeing the public benefit in this? I think that's exactly right. I think that what has happened was while there were, were many people who would have predicted uh, back in 2005 that, that a court would call this fair use for various reasons, uh, I think 
what we just heard is exactly right, that many more would have predicted it uh, by the time this decision actually came down in October, because the court cases had changed the way or refocused the way that we all looked at fair use. Now, it's true that if you go back 300 years in the history of what we know as Western copyright law and the model of what we know today, it's really been about the public. It's been giving rights to individuals, but ultimately it's a giving of those rights for the purpose of not letting them earn money. That's, that's an incident of it, but really for the main purpose of allowing people to be encouraged to create to share, to get that content out of their heads, out to the public, so that the public can benefit from it. And and the granting of rights is intended to do that, but so is the limiting of the rights. And so fair use, for example, among other limitations, serves the same purpose. The purpose of fair use is to allow all of us to benefit from works by using those works, perhaps, in ways that would be a violation of the law if it were not for fair use. And so the fair use statute is not a defense. It says on its own face that that the fair use of a work is not an infringement. And and that's straight out of, out of the statute that it's it's really a carve out for the public benefit to foster the next generation of creativity and further learning. And I would just say quickly and and let others jump in that it's exactly right what we've been talking about, that uh, visions and attitudes and indeed some of the law about, about fair use has evolved in recent several years. But that's standard procedure for fair use. And it gets us to the point where what hasn't changed over the years is ultimately fair use is based on those factors in the statute and the exercise of fair use is based on careful planning and that's what the court pointed to in part in the Google Books project that they use certain protective devices and steps and strategies to protect the interests of rights holders while at the same time engaging in fair use. Bill Frankel, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Were you at all surprised by the Second Circuit decision in this case? I'm I'm taking it from some of your early comments that you saw this coming as well. Yeah, I wasn't surprised by the decision. I I think what interested me about it is the way the court came back to these four factors that we traditionally analyze with respect to fair use and applied each of them in this case. and, And in doing so, one could argue that the court rendered some of the factors impotent because all of a sudden the court's saying things like, well, yeah, you can copy the entirety of a work as long as there's a transformative purpose. Uh, you can make money off the, the copying. You can, uh, it can be a commercial venture that doesn't necessarily mitigate against, against fair use and so on. And so some of these factors that you know, normally would weigh in favor of one, uh, either fair use or infringement, the court was very careful to say no one of these factors is, is dispositive. And that, that, of course, has always been the law. But it's just interesting to you know, have these four factors and, and observe all of a sudden that no one of them may lean one way or the other. 
the overriding issue here, of course, in the court's mind was that this was a transformative use that was providing a, a benefit to the public. And, and that's clearly what drove this decision. And, and I can't say it's wrong uh, on that basis, but it does raise some interesting implications going forward. I mean, what if Google decides it's going to start running ads on its book search results? The court noted in its decision that that was something that was not occurring and, and presumably weighed into their thinking. But, but if it were the case, the court's already said that commercial use in and of itself doesn't rule out the possibility of fair use. So where are the lines going to be drawn in the future? And how is this going to apply, not just in, in this case, but uh, of books, but, but with respect to art, for example? The problem with art is that you, you wind up with judges deciding what is transformative or not. It's not as simple as the issue that was before the Second Circuit, uh, whether books are searchable or whether they're being copied uh, for publication purposes. So those are some interesting questions. And another one that, that jumped out at me because we recently got a decision out of the Ninth Circuit in the so-called Dancing Baby case, which stands for the proposition that you have to make a, a good faith stab at a, at a fair use analysis before you send a takedown notice to a party. And so how is a corporation, a record company, or another rights holder uh, going to factor in this fair use analysis now uh, in, in the wake of the Google Books decision, the Authors Guild decision? How are they going to factor that in before they send out a notice and takedown letter? So I, I think the case has some interesting implications for copyright law. And and I, I think it certainly raises questions uh, going forward as to how the fair use analysis is going to play out in all cases. Yeah, and just for the benefit of our listeners who, who may not be familiar with the case or with, or with Google Books, it, just to be clear, there, Google did not put the full text of these books uh, online or at least make them uh, available online. I mean, but it did, uh, as I understand it from the, the Second Circuit's opinion, there were kind of three issues here. One was that, that Google pretty much wholesale digitized a number of books, copyrighted and, and books that were out of copyright, but just took the whole books and digitized them. And then it created a search functionality that allows users to search for terms within those books. And then there's this uh, display of snippets of text that match uh, search results. And the snippets are, are limited uh, in what you can see. And as I understood it from the decision, it's also limited uh, in, in how much of the book can be seen overall through these snippets. But uh, Jeremy, I, looking at the Authors Guild website, it appears that you're requesting review of this by the Supreme Court. So I take it that, that you don't necessarily agree that this was inevitable that the Second Circuit was going to come down this way. We did not think it was inevitable that the Second Circuit would come out this way, although after the Hathi Trust ruling, we had an uphill battle to convince the uh, Second Circuit that they should decide this case differently than the Hathi Trust case. And we, because that was precedent, we had to, among other things, focus on the fact that the Google Books program was was commercial uh, and that they were it was profit-driven, whereas the Hathi Trust program was run by nonprofit libraries. The Authors Guild is, is appealing this ruling. And I think that uh, further to what both Bill and, and Ken said, this decision, it's, it's a significant decision. Um, it, it represents a, 
an expansion and an, I think an unprecedented expansion of fair use. I don't think that it's completely out of step with where this has been heading over the last 10 years or so. Uh, in fact, there was another case uh, involving Google over its uh, image searching program that was decided in 2007 by the Ninth Circuit that held that its image searching program was with fair use and, and under the fair use doctrine um, and, and applying the transformative use test. Uh, what's, what's interesting about the transformative use test, among other things, is that the test was really first articulated by Pierre Laval, the judge who, who wrote this Second Circuit decision. And when he wrote it and when it was applied and adopted by the Supreme Court in the Campbell versus Acuff-Rose case, which was the case over the um, Two Live Crew coming up with a parody or it was held to be a parody of Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. And that was the case that held that parody is fair use. And when they articulated the transformative use test, the way that it was articulated and the way that courts had generally applied it was it's fair use if you take somebody's work to create sort of new and different expression from the original under the theory, at least we argue, under the theory that it encourages more copyrighted works and more expression to go into the world when you allow authors to draw upon other works in order to do commentary, in order to do parody. You need to be able to draw on the original. What we have here in this case, uh, in the Google Books case, and what you had in the image search case, and what you have in some of the other cases, there's an iParadigms case in the Fourth Circuit, for example, is not a case where you're taking existing copyrighted works in order to create new works of expression, in order to put more authorship into the world. You're taking those works in order to expand their utility, or that's the word that Laval actually used in this opinion. He said, it's not just to create new and different expression, it's also to create utility. What we're seeing is a, a real expansion of the transformative use test, and it's written by the judge who actually in some ways coined the transformative use test, um, and then it was adopted by the Supreme Court. And we believe, the Authors Guild believes, that uh, the transformative use test has gone a little bit off the rails. Um, and that has reflected not just in this opinion, which denies authors uh, their, we believe, their rights of exclusivity over their, over their works of authorship, and therefore um, does not encourage uh, new works of authorship. But also in cases like the Prince versus Cariou case, which is another Second Circuit case that Bill was alluding to before, I believe, where it's about art misappropriation and or appropriation and where the Second Circuit is sort of or sorry, the judges are sort of making the decisions on their own as to whether art is transformative or not. And that question, is it transformative or not? is sort of the decide the whole thing. Once you decide if the judge decides it's transformative, it's fair use. If they don't decide it's trans if it's not transformative, it's not fair use. And and we believe that that is not the uh Congress's intent under the Copyright Act and and we believe that the Supreme Court should therefore rein in this test so that it is fair use is used to create new works of authorship and encourage creativity in that way and not uh, by allowing uh, a commercial enterprise like Google to profit off of uh, the backs of authors. Kenneth Cruz, do you see uh, transformative use off the rails w with this decision? Not necessarily with this decision. I think we have seen over the last several years this evolution of transformative, the, the concept of transformative use. 
going into in two directions that Jeremy already articulated. One is creating a new work that's based on the existing work. So you transform the artwork, you transform the song, and you create something new. And we all know that those of us working with copyright, that that runs the risk that what you may be creating is a derivative work. Well, then the court said in this case, this is really about the second prong of transformative use, that this is about creating a new utility from the existing work, and that's the searchability and the delivery of just snippets. But think of it this way. Transformative use is an analysis that the courts have adopted and have made a part of the first of four factors of fair use. Now, it's absolutely true what the others here have said, that once you determine it's it's transformative, that does have a kind of a ripple effect and it influences the direction some of the other factors are going to go. Um, it doesn't decide it, but it clearly, clearly influences where those other factors may go. So it's a powerful determination in the, in the context of fair use. But that last factor, the fourth of four factors, and, and this is not in order of priority, it's just the order that they're laid out in the statute. Can you just lay out what the four factors are again for us besides transformative use? Sure. I, I think of them as four words, purpose, nature, amount, and effect. It's what's the purpose of your use, and nonprofit kind of purposes are generally favored over commercial uses, but as we've learned from the cases, that's not a rule. The second factor, the nature, what's the nature of the work? Certain types of works, more creative works, generally get more protection, hence less fair use. And again, that's not a hard and fast rule. The amount, what's the amount of the work that you're using? Well, in this case, it's 100% because they had to scan 100%. But the court said, you know, even that's not a rule because you can scan 100% if the overall context is going to favor fair use. And that fourth factor, what's the effect of your use on the market for the original? And if I'm creating a true derivative that's typical of what a copyright owner might make, an encyclopedia or uh, to go with the Harry Potter books, uh, that's a kind of knockoff, spin-off derivative that the courts, you know, court has said, another court has said that's something that's typical of what copyright owners do with their successful novels, and therefore it's certainly not within fair use. So in this case. It's that it may be digitizing the whole thing. It may be uh, that second type of transformative where it creates a new utility. But when you get to that fourth factor, these are the kinds of uses that under the circumstances don't interfere with the market or harm the value of the original work. And the court said, well, maybe they do, but not very much if they do. And so it's a, it's a balancing test. It's an overall kind of analysis of the four factors that overall, do they lean this way or do they lean that way? And so what the court really did here, too, was oddly... They've been dismissing all these hard and fast rules, which is no question the direction the Supreme Court has sent fair use, starting with that pretty woman case in 1994. But, but then they reintroduced one of those rules 
that I think was largely dissed by the Supreme Court, a rule that said the fourth factor is the most important factor. And so the court really gave a lot of attention, more attention, I think, than it needed to, to that fourth factor. And even then, didn't see market harm, found transformative use on the balance this weighs in favor of fair use. Thanks. We're unfortunately getting way over our time here. Uh, I promised to have you all out of here in 30 minutes, and we've gone over that. I, I do want to go around with each of you and kind of get your final thoughts on this, but maybe you could, in doing that, kind of speak to what you see as the, the implications uh, of this decision, what its uh, effect will be uh, on, on authors, on the public, and, and on the law. So, uh, Bill Frankel, maybe we could start with you. Sure. Thanks, Bob and Jeremy and Kenny. I, I think the observations and, and points were made very right on and, and informative about this case. It is a fascinating case. It's been fascinating to watch for the last 10 years, to watch the case evolve, to watch transformative use evolve, and to watch the law evolve, not only with respect to books, but with respect to art and thumbnail images and all kinds of other copyrightable works. And I find it interesting that even though the court was trying not to uh, trying to apply the four-factor test and and not try to adopt any bright-line rule, the case in that sense has created some room for debate, discussion, question, and I think it leaves open uh, in the future uh, questions. Um, if, if Google can scan every book that was ever written, is there anything to stop it from scanning every painting? that was ever made. And is that a bad thing or a good thing? Uh, is there a public benefit there? I mentioned before, what if Google starts running ads with its book search results? Does that change the equation? I think there's some interesting questions of this nature that the courts will be grappling with. And we've already seen a challenge of, of, of transformativeness notion. Uh, some have called it the blob that ate fair use. Um, but the Seventh Circuit in a recent case uh, here in, in Chicago, said that they urged that we shift away from the emphasis on transformativeness because of these vagaries and that we look to the, the fair use factor, the fourth fair use factor, the market effect, and give that more emphasis and credence. I'm not sure that would have resulted in a different conclusion in this case, but there is a, a divergent view that I think we may see play out in the future as well. So Bottom line, very interesting case, probably the right decision on the facts, but still a lot of questions for the application of fair use in the future. Bill, and if any of our listeners would like to follow up with you, what's, what's a good way for them to find you? Always available on email, wfrankel, W-F-R-A-N-K-E-L, at brinkskilson.com. Thanks a lot. And uh, Kenneth Cruz, uh, how about you? Yeah, I see the case as an extension of, of where previous cases had been leading us. And um, I also look at it as a, in the marketplace and say, well, you know, there are very few players who can match what Google is doing and would be willing to even, even make the investment to match what Google is doing. So one part of me also looks at it and says, well, this is just sort of a Google-specific situation. But then on third thought... Um, it really isn't. I think what this opens up is some ability for universities and libraries on, a, on, a, on no question a much smaller scale because of the logistics and the cost 
to um, engage in some other socially beneficial uses of materials in their collection, especially preservation, digitizing for preservation and protection of different works, especially scarce and, and brittle items. And I think this opens up some new and I, I think constructive possibilities there as well. So uh, my thanks to you for this opportunity. Thank you, Kenneth. And uh, if any of our listeners would like to follow up with you, how would they do that? Oh, I'm pretty easy to find. You can, (laughs) pardon the pun, Google me and I'll pop up all over the place. Although I I really uh, recently relocated to uh, my hometown of Los Angeles and I'm at a firm that's GHP, those letters, ghplaw.com and you'll find me. And, and we won't just get the snippet there. We'll get, we'll get all of you there. So, Jeremy Goldman, you get the final word today. Well, thanks. I appreciate everyone's input today. It was an interesting discussion. I wish, we, I'm sure we, the three of us could, or the four of us could go on for, for many hours on this, on this really interesting topic of copyright law. You know, I, I would, this is, this is how, what I want to say. The Authors Guild is a, one of the oldest and the largest organizations of authors in the world. The authors are the people who put the books on the shelves of the library. And I I don't want that to get lost in all of this. Authors are the people who are the most interested in copyright. Authors are the people who are the most interested in the progress of science and the arts, which is the underlying purpose of copyright. They are not opposed to uh, progress. They're not opposed to having books that are searchable. In fact, authors are the people who benefit very much from having a, a database like Google Books. Authors, however, I think deserve a right to be at the table when uh, their works are going to be mass digitized and and commercialized by by a company like Google. And I think ultimately this really would benefit society greatly um, if rights holders and authors were were at the table. And, And in fact, that's what really happened here after the Authors Guild filed a lawsuit against Google. What the way that the reason it took 10 years is because about three or four of those years. Was, was Google and representatives from the Authors Guild and representatives from libraries all over the country convening and coming up with a, really an ingenious settlement agreement that would have, I think, for the better of, of, of society far beyond what the Google Books platform is now, would have allowed people to access the books and to have access to uh, what are called orphan works and to books that have been out of print and to actually read those books and to compensate authors for those contributions. And that's really where this lawsuit uh, led until the judge rejected it for because there were a lot of people who, who opposed it. The reason I'm saying that is because I think that the concern that I have, and I think the client shares it as well, is that with the Second Circuit ruling that this is fair use, it takes away some of the impetus of Congress and, and, and the various stakeholders to come together and to come up with something much better for the people who are interested in being able to access books. Uh, I think that the much better solution is one like they're doing in Europe, which is where you have extended collective licensing um, agreements where you know m- vast numbers of rights holders sort of automatically grant rights to uh, a library, a national library, or uh, something like Google and that allows people to and audiences to be able to access the books and view the books and exploit them, but with authors having rights over how those works are secured and how they are compensated for their input into a system like this. I think that the way that this has been done with millions of books being sort of copied in, in, the, in the quiet of night in, in the back of trucks is not fair. And ultimately, you just look, is, does 
doesn't pass the smell test. And I think a lot of authors and, and rights holders and people that respect those uh, think that this was a real act of chutzpah by Google. Um, that said, I, I understand it serves society, and I think the authors understand that this serves a societal benefit. So the goal is not to shut it down, but the goal is to have a place at the table and to hopefully make this better for everyone. So that is my closing argument. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, Jeremy, thank you. And how can our listeners follow up with you? Sure. I'm Jeremy Goldman again, and I'm at uh, jgoldman at fkks.com. You can find me on Twitter at IP Privacy Lawyer, and I am also out here in LA right now. So, Ken, maybe we can grab a coffee one day. And that would be a pleasure. Well, thanks to all of you for taking the time to be with us today. We really appreciate your thoughts. This is a really interesting discussion, and I really wish we had a lot more time to talk about it, uh, including that settlement agreement that would be interesting to talk more about. But we're out of time. Uh, I'd like to, again, thank uh, Attorney Bill Frankel from Brinks-Gilson and Leone in Chicago, Kenneth Cruz from Gibson Hoffman and Pantheon in Los Angeles, and Jeremy S. Goldman from Frankfurt, Kernet, Klein, and Seltz in New York, currently in L.A. Uh, thanks to all of you for being with us today. I really appreciate it. And uh, that wraps up another episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks to all of you for listening. And uh, join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.